Hi, Be The Bridge community. What you're about to listen to is a Facebook Live interview that we had in the past that we thought that would be helpful for this season in our country. So I want you to sit back and listen because this information could be helpful and hopeful. And so as we always say, we want you to listen, we want you to learn, we want you to lament, and we want you to leverage. So enjoy. You're listening to Sounds of Justice, a Be The Bridge podcast. Hello, I think we are live now. Um, Welcome to everyone who is joining us. You are joining Be The Bridge. Um, My name is Gina Fimble and I'm an ambassador with Be The Bridge. Um, It is truly our pleasure to welcome Matthew Horace. Uh, We have been so excited about this interview. Matthew Horace wrote a powerful book called The Black and the Blue. The Cop Reveals the Crime, Racism, and Injustice in America's Law Enforcement. Um, Mr. Horace has been a law enforcement officer at the state, federal, and local level for nearly 30 years. Um, so welcome, Mr. Horace. Good evening. How are you? I'm good. Um, here is your book, and I hope that everyone will get a copy. Um, it has been very eye-opening to me, a very powerful book. Um, one of the more popular books in our group is uh, Brian Stevenson's Just Mercy, which reveals um, a lot of the problems within the criminal justice system. And I think that your book is just as powerful and revealing um, all the reform that needs to happen within our policing system. So I thought we could kick it off by perhaps, if you wouldn't mind, to read a segment of your book for us. Well, I will. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for having me on tonight. I am a cop. Make no mistake about it. I've been a part of the best and the worst that my noble profession represents. I've worked hard and played hard, true to cop culture. I've been in sports leagues with cops. I've eaten, drunk, and worshipped with cops. I've picnicked, partied, and celebrated with cops. I've cried with cops. And when some of us have died, a part of me has died with them. I pursued bad guys and protected communities in every state of the country, even Guam, and at nearly every level of law enforcement. I've held lots of titles. I was a police officer, a federal agent, a senior executive. I've headed task forces, conducted trainings, overseen high-risk operations, coordinated multi-state investigations at Moore. Still at my core, I'm just a cop, one of the hundreds of thousands of men and women who have at some point taken an oath to protect and serve the people of this great nation. So even as a cop, I am the black child who was told by loving parents that no matter how absurd the reason for the stop by police, no matter what insults are hurled my way, no matter what degradation I'm subjected to, to submit so that I could make it home alive. I am Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old boy playing a decades-old game of imaginary cops and robbers with a toy gun. It was given to him by a relative. The police were called, and Rice was shot dead within two seconds of the officer's arrival. When I started writing this book, a friend former chief of police in New York City, I told him that I wanted to make a point and I didn't want to minimize the risk that officers face. 
when I, while I understand the frustrations of African-Americans and others, I want to make sure people know and understand how difficult a job policing can be. My friend turned to me and said, Black people know how hard the job is. What they don't understand is how is it that we, the police, are never wrong. They don't understand how in case after case, a person is shot and killed by police, but the police are never at fault. They're never wrong. The need to address the subject of police and race has been brought into sharp focus recently by the Black Lives Matter movement. I hope that the black and blue can add value to this process. Hmm. That's very powerful. Thank you. So can you just briefly tell us why did you write this book? Like, how did it come to life? Well, there was a period probably during 19, I'm sorry, during 2015, where there seemed to be incident after incident after incident. And at the time I was um, serving in the capacity of a full-time contributor to CNN. And the calls initially were once a month, twice a month. And for a while, it was almost like every week, if not several times a week, another shooting, another black male victim. So we started analyzing them holistically. And I just felt that I had the platform, the timing, and the subject matter to go ahead and tackle this very tough issue. Mm. So what has been the response of the book so far? Well, you know, from people who have actually read the book, the response has been amazing mm -hmm. uh, on all sides of the aisle. Uh, people who I'm familiar with have called and emailed and responded in a very positive way. A lot of the people who have responded in a negative way haven't actually read the book. Mm -hmm. and, you know, and there, there is an issue in our profession that we sort of line up and close ranks and sort of say, hey, we're not budging. We're feeling victimized. So mm -hmm. by and large, anyone who's read the book, the response has been overwhelming. And, you know, it's been uh, it's been an emotional journey for me. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you truly have such a unique perspective because you are both a black man in America, but you are also you also were a law enforcement officer. So you really have an inside view into the policing system. So do you believe that our policing system is inherently biased? I think there are things about it and things about our hiring, recruitment, and uh, best practices that cause bias to manifest itself in a negative way in policing. And, you know, I point out in the book, as you know, that um, implicit bias is something that we all have. Yes. The, the and it doesn't matter whether you're a police officer or a doctor or a, a recreation center leader. We all have these biases that are ingrained and inherent in us. The challenge becomes when a person who has the authority to take civil liberties and also the authority to take a life, don't put these um, biases in check, then we can have disastrous consequences. And we've seen that in case after case after case. And what are some of the cases that you have seen personally that stand out to you the most where you have seen this bias come to life? Well, I think the uh, Walter Scott case in uh, North Charleston, South Carolina, was mm -hmm. one. you know, uh, with, the, with the whole advent and of uh, technology, video technology and cell phone technology. Now the world has the opportunity to see what only a very small segment of society saw through the years. So now when you look at a case like Walter Scott, and believe me, when we did this book, we spoke to hundreds of people and people said repeatedly, had they not seen that incident on video, mm -hmm. they might not have believed that it actually happened. Mm -hmm. So video, have been, video has been a good thing, a, a bad thing, but it's definitely been a game changer for the way the public perceives law enforcement mm -hmm. and now the way 
uh, law enforcement perceives the public because now video technology has led to officers wearing body cameras and the like. So mm -hmm. we're seeing more now in a very visual way than we ever did in the past. Um, and so from the data that I've been able to find, mostly from the Washington Post, it shows that there are huge disparities in how police officers use force across racial lines. Um, does the police, do they have a way of tracking this information or the federal government, do they, is it a mandatory tracking system that police officers or police um, precincts must abide by? Well, you know, a lot of departments have reporting requirements to say every time you'll stop an individual, you need to fill out some semblance of a field identification card where you put down the person you stopped, their name, their date of birth, their race, you know, all the demographic information. And a lot of departments uh, get that information filtered into data, data databases. So mm -hmm. they can report on how many people are we stopping, what race under what conditions, what neighborhoods, and those sort of things. And certainly the DOJ, when they come in and do their research, they do an exhaustive uh, job uh, at, at, at sort of um, getting the resource and getting, getting the numbers. Okay. Um, and so is there an agency that leases the police? In essence? <laughs> well, every organization has their own internal affairs or their, or their own internal investigations bureau. They're, they're generally smaller organizations because organizations have less issues like that. But, mm -hmm. you know, when something rises to the level of having your organization being placed under a Department of Justice consent degree, there has to have been incident after incident after incident. So mm -hmm. as we see now, departments like um, New Orleans was under a consent decree, Baltimore was under a consent decree, Chicago's under a consent decree, and other departments, because they haven't been able to police themselves ultimately. And the mm -hmm. Department of Justice comes in to manage the process. Okay. Um, so as a white person, I have to say, I grew up feeling that the police was generally protective of me, um, but, as I have become an adult and I have made um, so many friends who are black, they don't feel that same way. So in other words, the police often feels oppressive to them as opposed to protective. Um, and one of the things that we do in Airbnb is we hold space to lament the, what seems to be the continued violence against black people at the hands of the police. Um, and we, we obviously know that there are good police officers out there and moral police officers and more so than the bad apples, so to speak. But why is it so difficult for a police officer to be charged when it's clear that there was some sort of malice or injustice? Or if there's not a video in the case of Walter Scott, why why is it so difficult? Well, you know, um, I think to, I think to your earlier point, I think that communities see policing very differently because their experiences show them that police is, policing is done very differently. In some communities, uh, people feel as though police are protecting and serving, and in other communities, not. You know, when we did the book, we interviewed, again, hundreds of people. We talked to people in Philadelphia, in Chicago, and New Orleans. And, you know, repeatedly what people said was, we need the police, we love the police, and when we need them, we call them. Our problem is when they come, we don't know who was going to show up. And that's what people, and that's what people told us um, repeatedly in uh, in city after city, and that creates a sense of marginalization. It creates it creates a sense of um, mistrust. If you see the crime rates in Chicago and other cities, you look at what happened this year. A couple weekends, I think one weekend in Chicago there was seventy three shootings. Another weekend there was fifty six shootings. Well, how that impacts the police is, if people don't trust the police, they're not going to give them information to help solve crimes because you don't tell people things if you don't trust them. 
It's just, mm-hmm. it's just a natural manifestation of, um, of relationship building. So I think there's a lot that can be done, but it all begins with trust. So I, 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 uh, I support the work that you are doing in trying to build those bridges, no pun intended. But mm-hmm. I think once we get to the point where the, bit, where the bridges are built before the crisis happens, it'll make things a lot easier to communicate when the crisis happens. I mean, do you believe that um, in general police acknowledge that there's just this this gap, this lack of trust? I mean, we have communities so far as to say they feel harassed by police. Do you think that's acknowledged and recognized? And if so, what are they doing to combat that? Sure. Well, you know, there's been a lot of things that happened in 2016. uh, Terrence Cunningham, who was the uh, president, then president of the International Association of chiefs of police, he made a bold move, you know, at at the national conference. And he came out and said, listen, policing has not always been what it has, what it should have been. And there are a lot of police leaders, black, white, Hispanic, male, women across all lines that understand this. And they talk about it frequently. And then there are those brave leaders that come out and try to solve the problem by offering training to their officers and making it very clear that implicit bias training is essential, that we're not going to tolerate this. And other departments are just too big and too unwielding, too many layers. And mm-hmm. you know, at, at the end of the day, a 20% number could cause a big problem in a department and in a community. So to your mm-hmm. point earlier about policing the police, it becomes a very, very important issue. I don't mm-hmm. think that we can ignore the data. And you know, the data shows what the data shows. And we don't create the data. The data creates itself. So um, as I said in an interview last week, uh, implicit bias and racism are elements of society. So for anyone to suggest that those two evils don't permeate themselves into law enforcement, either has their head in the sand or they really shouldn't be in the profession because it does. Those of us who work behind the scenes know that this is an issue uh, in our organizations. And it's something that really, if we're going to deal with it, we need to acknowledge it. So to your point. Yeah, and in fact, you talk about um, in the book a time when you even had the gun turned toward you without someone um, recognizing that you were a police officer. Can you tell that experience? Sure. Well, I mean, at least, um, at least in one occasion, if not more, I know in the book we talk about an operation where I was doing an undercover and I was purchasing guns and drugs from a defendant. And when it came time to um, to execute an arrest, a police officer who wasn't even involved in the case got involved with the uh, arrest and for whatever reason thought that I was defended and I ended up with a gun in my face. Well, some can say that that is a mistake that can happen, but it's a mistake that shouldn't happen. And, mm-hmm. and when you really start talking about implicit bias, one of the other cases we talk about in the book is the, um, the murder of, um, of Omar Edwards. Omar Edwards was an African-American police officer in New York and all he ever wanted to be his entire life was a police officer. Mm-hmm. And uh, when he completed his shift one evening, he went to his own vehicle and, and observed it being um, broken into. He gave chase as police officers are trained to do. And when he caught up with the individual, gun drawn, he was shot and killed by two white New York City police officers in, mm-hmm. a, case of, in a case of mistaken identity. Well, at the end of the day, anyone who's African-American who carries a gun or a badge knows that this is something that can happen. If I was running down the street with a gun chasing someone, I could very well be mistaken because of those ingrained you know, sort of implicit biases. No one, would, no one would stop all of a sudden and say, that might be a cop, he has a gun. Or I think he's a cop, he's, you know, he's right. 
I mean, they wouldn't know. So these things happen and they, and it happened all too often, uh, blue on blue uh, fires, what we call it. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, in your book, you do, you do a deep dive um, about Ferguson. You talk about Ferguson a lot. And after the shooting of Michael Brown in 2014, the justice department um, did an investigation and they found pervasive um, pattern of racial bias within the police and the court system in Ferguson, including targeting Black people for stops and arrests and use of police. Um, do you think that that is typical in most communities? Do you think that Ferguson is typical? Well, I think that the issues are different in every community. Now, what, what stands out about Ferguson, and you were talking about the what you're talking about, the outcomes and what the result of policing um, showed us. But in Ferguson, the investigation also shown that for years there was this system of taxing and fining and arresting and, and issuing warrants for members of the public for very small things. There was also situations in Ferguson where someone get arrested for one thing and be charged with 10 or 12 violations. And what that caused was that caused people to be sort of indentured to financial conditions that were caused by bad policing. The other thing in Ferguson, so there's two issues you're talking about. One is policing, but the other one is the management. So in Ferguson, you also had uh, government leaders, uh, finance directors, mayors, and others that were implicit in the problem. And they were creating this environment where police felt as though revenue was the driving factor uh, for their policing. And in this case, uh, it was at it was at the detriment to the African-American community. But in many cases, it may not be. So uh, what we like to make clear in the book is that it's not just one cop or three cops or four cops. Cops, they don't create their own strategic plans. They are they're directed to do policing in a certain way and they are incentivized by the outcomes of policing. So that's something that needs to be looked at on a broader scale. And that's why I believe that uh, police reform is necessary. And what would you say would be like the three major areas that you would target for police reform? We, rec we would recruit hiring. We, we would target hiring, recruitment, and mm -hmm. accountability. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you talk a lot about um, this notion of a toxic brotherhood within policing and police culture. Can you just elaborate on that a little bit? Well, well, one of the things that, you know, most of us that come come on the job, and we, I just had this discussion with someone today. You know, the truth of the matter is we come on the job whenever it is we do. And in many cases, training officers sort of dictate how you sort of come on and learn how to execute policing strategies. And in my case and other cases, Police officers are told at the very beginning, number one, what happens in this car stays in this car. And number two, we don't tell on each other. You know, it's just one of those written or it's not a written code, it's an unwritten code. And the reason why that happens is because we believe that we're the only ones that understand what we go through in this difficult job that we do that everyone can't do. So therefore, we don't tell on other, other cops. So a lot of organizations are very deep and strong in that culture. Some organizations are not. And some organizations, it's the opposite. You are incentivized when you tell another cops because the risk is far too great than the benefit. And what are some of those cities that incentivize officers to speak out if they see injustice? And have you found that it's helped? Well, sure. If you look at a situation like New Orleans with uh, uh, former superintendent Harrison in New Orleans, you know, he really, him and his staff really turned around the department that had a criminal culture. It wasn't just one bad cop or two bad cops. New Orleans had police officers who murdered people and raped people. And, you know, when 
Hurricane Katrina happened, there were un, there were just unsolicited murders on the street by by police officers. Mm -hmm. Michael Harrison has done a lot to incentivize officers, and he's all he's also made it an issue where if you see something and don't tell, you're as accountable as the person who commits the act. So mm -hmm. he's done some things. And then there's some other departments that have done things related to officer wellness and ensuring that departments are looking out for their police officers' wellness. If you see people going down a wrong rail, somebody needs to step in and, and, and yank them back into you know, control, whether it be because they're having uh, lifestyle issue problems or financial mm -hmm. challenges. You just can't let people who need to show compassion and empathy to members of the public just go out on their own, especially if they start to have issues that, um, that uh, impede their judgment shall we say. Mm -hmm. So what is the hope here? I mean, how will this change? Is this something that, that needs to be regulated at the federal level? It seems like there's just a wide um, variety, like one precinct could be good, another not doing such a great job. So how do we get more consistency across the board? Well, you know, some people have called for national policing standards. Uh, that's very difficult in the, in the world we live in because of home rule, you know, counties and towns and states want to have the ability to manage their own challenges, right? And, mm -hmm. and, and you know, I, I've called for, and other law enforcement leaders have called for national hiring standards. You know, currently, you can, uh, right now, as we sit here, I'm in Louisiana, right? And um, in Louisiana, things could be, in other words, when you get on the job, can you be hired at 19, 20, 21? Or do we need to wait till people have life experience? And do they need to be 25 years old before mm -hmm. they become a police officer? Do you have to take a polygraph or not take a polygraph? Do you need college or do you not need college? Should you have been in the military? There are so many different hiring standards all around the country that mm -hmm. you get a different type of recruit everywhere you go. So some in New Jersey, I remember where I worked, you couldn't give um, polygraph examination for pre-employment. Well, polygraph examinations are normal and customary for policing where you need people to have integrity that's beyond reproach. Mm -hmm. Some departments don't do it though. Right. Um, so what does an average citizen do if they recognize that there is implicit bias in the system and that there is police brutality, um, that there is crime and injustice? What does someone like me, I mean, I'm a stay-at-home mom, <laughs> how in the world would I change that? Right. Well, well, it depends on your trust in the system. I would say in general terms, every police department has an internal affairs bureau. You can write a letter, send a link to a video, ask to speak to someone in the upper level chain of command. Now, while that sounds like the right thing to do, uh, that's what someone, a young lady we write about in the book did in New Orleans. She saw she saw something that she knew was wrong. She reported it to the New Orleans, New Orleans Police Department, and she ended up being killed by a street thug that was hired by a detective in the New Orleans police. So depending on where you live and depending on how much you trust the system, is really going to guide how you deal with that issue. There are supposed to be those checks and balances in place, though. Are there organizations that you trust that are actively working for police reform that you feel is a good thing? Oh, sure. Well, there are a lot of police organizations that I do trust. But you look at organizations like the COPS program, the ISCP, the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Executives. All of those organizations are really working to improve services, if you will. A lot of many times, though, people disagree as to what needs to be improved. And that happens because of their lens. So people are going to disagree or agree based on what their experiences are. So there are still people that say, and when I learned this in writing the book, we heard from people that would say, whenever I see a police car and somebody's pulled off on the side of the road, I immediately think that someone's done something wrong. 
Well, mm-hmm. that's 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 their lens and their perspective. And mm-hmm. then you hear and then you hear from other people to say every time you see someone pulled off on the side of the road, they stop to look to make sure everything is OK and make sure the police are doing what they're supposed to do. So it just all depends on the lens that people bring to the table. Mm-hmm. Um. Is there any that you would like to mention here? I mean, if someone wanted to financially contribute or just to get more involved in an organization that's working for police reform, where will they start? Well, I think um, there are a lot of organizations. Your organizations are a great example because, you know, with grants, with grant money, organizations can work with police organizations to sort of create that bridge of communication. So mm-hmm. all the organizations I mentioned are certainly uh, viable um, and they can be noble national organization of black law enforcement executive. They work to find solutions. They work to find solutions. Listen, everybody, all the thought leaders, all the executives that work, most of the chiefs around the country. If you ask them at the chief level, the executives, people who are responsible for resources, they will tell you that they understand that it's, it's an imperfect system. Mm-hmm. What they don't know, they don't know the solution to create a, a better system for a better holistic system because the chief in Tucson. He might have he or she may have the answer in Tucson, but they don't have the answer in Delaware. And the chief in Miami doesn't have the answer in um, Albuquerque. And it's really it's a very complicated issue. But we have to do something and we have to recognize that we have a problem and try to work for solutions. We we look for outcome based measures. Mm -hmm. Yes, absolutely. Evidence based. Um, Mr. Horace, I just want to thank you for your book. Um, you told a couple of the stories tonight briefly, but your book is literally filled with story after story where I found myself in tears or I was my jaw was dropping because um, even though on some level I know that those things happen to read of the personal stories and how it's affected people, it just it's truly heartbreaking and eye-opening, and so I urge everyone to buy the book. Um, and I thank you for speaking out and um, for telling the truth, because one thing that we do believe at Beaver Village is that racial reconciliation will not happen without truth. And I think your book is a great step in that direction. So thank you, sir. No problem. Well, you know, I really believe if you want to get to people's heads, you got to touch their hearts. So we're hoping that this book touches enough hearts that we can get to enough heads and we can start some healing and reconciliation in the United States. Well, we will put a link to your book down in the comments and where can people find you if they want to learn more about your work? Uh, www.matthewhorace.com. Uh, I travel the country speaking. Uh, I just had a speaking engagement today here at Grambling University. I'm more than willing to come out and speak to folks about the book, about the culture, about the broader issue and you know, ideas on how we get better. Okay. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Have a great evening. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this Be The Bridge production. For more bridge building resources, visit our website at bethebridge.com.